0: Have you ever rented one of those uh, bicycles in some major cities across Canada when you've been visiting them and had a perilous experience? I haven't, but there was a time I got really close. Samantha and I were in Vancouver this past. Uh, summer, and we rented bikes. We, we lived there for a couple of years, but we never rented bikes and, and never went around the, the seawall. And when I was doing that, I going down the seawall there in Vancouver, and I'm just trying to not hit people. I'm trying to not hit animals. Uh, I'm trying to not fall off the side of a cliff, because uh, that would really hurt. And while I ultimately needed to keep my focus on maintaining kind of my balance and not to hit people, you, you also have to look forward right? You, you have to look at where you're trying to go in your bicycle. As you're going, you'll kind of make your way in that direction, right? It can be perilous to try to make your way somewhere without looking uh, forward where you're trying to go, right? So you have to kind of be looking around, but also keep your eyes way forward on on where you're going. And I think the same is true in times of suffering. You know, Despite all the, the pitfalls uh, around you, it, we, we can't lose focus on the destination, Right, we do best when we set our minds on the goal, not on all the obstacles around us, right? I think about that with Hebrews chapter 12, verse two, thinking about the life of, of Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So his, his vision, his eyes, what he's looking for is the joy that was set before him, the glorification of the Father, him standing condemned in our place as our substitute for our sins, the joy there is in all of that, as he endures the cross. In today's episode, though, it's not about the goal. We, we've, we've talked about that already. Today's episode is about the potholes that can take us out along the way. But while they're not our focus, we need to know what we may hit that's that's en route as we're on our way. And the reason that we have this entire episode series on suffering, on, on doing it well, is because of how easily it is to suffer poorly when walking through suffering, right? So so today what we're going to do is spend time thinking through some of the most common ways that we can suffer poorly, right? The dangers on the path or in the road, so to speak. And suffering has a way of tempting us to lose sight of what God is really like, right? To minimize one or more of his attributes, right? Suffering poorly at its root has a deficient view of who God is. Even people whose theology is correctly fashioned in their heads can suffer really poorly because their practical theology, the view of God that actually drives their hopes and fears and actions, is false. In his letter to a group of Christians under pressure, (laughs) Peter exhorts them in 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In one way to be watchful is to be aware of unbiblical responses to suffering in our lives. The more we do so, the more equipped we'll be to respond in a way that honors God. So for the rest of our time together in this episode, we're going to discuss five unbiblical responses to suffering. Now, five is going to be a lot through which to think in this episode. So as a, as a practical matter, uh, I would consider reflecting maybe later on maybe one or two of them that would challenge you most and chat about it with, with someone in your life. And keep in mind to look for gaps between the theology you know and the theology you show in your daily life. So, so where are there gaps in what you practically believe, head knowledge, but, but, or theologically believe, head knowledge, but practically believe in your life that will trip you up when times of suffering come your way. So let's... Get at it. So the first response we're going to think through is the, what I would call the stiff upper lip response to suffering. And it's the one that basically believes God doesn't exist, right? Our first unbiblical response may be more of an atheistic response. And perhaps surprisingly, it is extremely common among Christians, right? It's kind of the just grin and bear it strategy for dealing with suffering. It's the stiff upper lip, just tough it out. Now, now why, why can that be an atheistic strategy? Well, it says that in a time of great difficulty, I'm going to persevere or move forward under my own power as if God did not exist. I'm going to fake it till I make it, baby. Right? I'm going to I'm going to keep this to myself because I've got it. My strategy is all about what I'm going to do. I can handle this. I don't need God. I don't need others. I I can do it. And in those moments, what we do is we become practical atheists. Right? There's something about asking for help that is humbling. And ever since Adam and Eve gave in to the temptation that they could be better off if they were God, right? Independent, self-reliant, deciding what's good for themselves. Ever since that time, we, we are born into this world and we often look to our own strength and are unwilling to admit to others that we need help. Even when we're suffering, there are times we'd rather grin and bear it than ask for help and be seen as weak, so I wanna give two thoughts on how to escape this unbiblical response. Firstly, humble yourself. Right? Self-reliance can be a form of pride and scripture's remedy for pride is humility. Right? Not a false humility that acts like everything is kind of fine all the time or whatever, but, but a real genuine humility. Let's think about Peter's words to suffering Christians. He says, 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And this verse tells us three really important things. First, recognize self-reliance as pride, which should be confessed as sin. If you think you can handle it on your own, you don't want to tell anyone about the suffering in your life, you don't want to depend on God and on others, confess that as sin. Secondly, recognize that God, not you, is the mighty savior. You are not the savior. You are not the Messiah. Only God is the mighty savior. Third, demonstrate that humility by casting your cares on him. I mean, mean, do you have it all together? No, of course you don't. That's the admission you made when you became a Christian. Is temptation hard? Yes, Jesus certainly thought so. And and do we showcase God's glory when we stubbornly try to deal with things on on our own, by ourselves? No, we don't. And quite often, we end faring very poorly if we do so. So that's the first thought on how to escape this unbiblical response. And here is the second one. Consider God's goals for your suffering, something we talked about a couple of episodes ago. Sometimes it can be difficult to both depend on God and be responsible. Say, for example, that you've had a, you have had a bad back. There are things you should do to address it, like going to the doctor, avoid heavy lifting, other things, go to physio, I don't know, other things. I'm not a doctor. But but uh, but I was just talking about depending on God. So So what does that mean? where we might also work to mitigate our suffering. Well, consider God's goals in this suffering. So let's think about Peter's words about trial in First Peter 1. He says, These have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Friend, you know, you can do a lot to help your back heal. You can but, but you cannot refine your own faith. You, you cannot make sure that your faith endures to the end and results in praise to God. Now, when we consider God's goals for our trials, we recognize how powerless we are to achieve them. Right, No matter how many things may seem within our control, right. in considering God's goals for our suffering is a good way out of self-reliance. So, so be responsible. Ice your back, go to the physio, but also remind yourself, how little control you have over the things that really matter in this trial and hold fast to God's promise that he will accomplish those things that are so important and so far out of your hands. Now, the second unbiblical reaction to sin might be to escape by by running to false gods. So there's, there's this response of escape, turning to something other than God for relief. For a moment, it feels like we've escaped from our problems. Then we sober up, find that nothing has changed, and then the cycle continues. How do we escape? Well, sometimes we literally flee. We flee suffering through drugs and alcohol. We flee a difficult marriage through divorce or through pornography. A difficult relationship through the silent treatment. Sometimes we, we try to escape through distraction or like our screens or our jobs or sex or shopping or food. What are other ways maybe that you go through? There's probably a lot of them. Sometimes it could also be simply fantasy, right? We create a world in our heads where everything goes the way we want it to. In all these escapes, what we initially thought to be a harmless distraction takes over our lives. We've invested in the empty promises of these false gods that we're trusting. And so we avoid having to trust the real God. It's what the Bible calls idolatry. God's people in the Old Testament did exactly this when they put their trust in uh, in the gods of Egypt uh, instead of in their God to protect them from the powerful Assyrian army. But their choice would prove devastating as we see in Isaiah chapter 30. We read, "'Ah, stubborn children,' declares the Lord, "'who carry out a plan but not mine, "'who make an alliance but not of my spirit, "'that they may add sin to sin, "'who set out to go down to Egypt "'without asking for my direction,' to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. Egypt's help is is worthless and empty. See, as he does so often, God promises that in mercy, he will destroy this false savior, Egypt, so his people will learn to rely on him. And one way that we can test to see if something is a helpful diversion or an unhelpful escape is to look at our response when it's finished. So did your vacation give you space to rest and think so that you're geared up to seek God's purposes and a different trial back at home? Or are you grumbling now that you have to return to the mess of your life? And if you work a lot, why why do you work as many hours as you do? Now, Christians as well, we, we are not ascetic, sweet. We are not called to deny ourselves from pleasurable things that this world has to offer. There, there are many nice things you may enjoy during suffering, like a meal out or a massage or vacation, that can give you comfort, refuge, and, and help you trust in God. Not to give the illusion of escaping our need of trusting Him. But, but what if you find yourself seeking escape? Well, we should remind ourselves and each other, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, not to be encroached with worldly escapes. For the present form of this world is passing away, he says, in verses 29 to 31. The sweet reality that's about to dawn in the new heavens, the new earth, is far better than any escape that we can ever experience. Now, the third unbiblical reaction to suffering is to think, I deserve better than this, that God rewards the righteous. So, so that's the uh, the unbiblical response which which Christians can be prone is, I deserve better than this, which can lead you to anger and despair. Why? Well, because you feel God has betrayed you. I made a deal with God. I would follow him. I would sacrifice my lifestyle and and I'd put all my priorities for him. He'd make my paths straight with a comfortable and profitable life. Bad things are supposed to happen to the people out there, not me. We are the good people. And this can just as easily lead to despair because suffering makes me wonder if I'm not good enough for God. You might call this the why me problem. Now, did you, did you hear the bad theology there? <laughs> While I'm thinking it's unfair for God to do this to me, actually God has decided that my plans for a nice, comfortable life weren't big enough. Think of, think of the Old Testament, Israel. As an example, they wanted a nice, comfortable life as God's special people, but God had different plans. Isaiah forty-nine six says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. See, friends, God sees the full story. We don't. And consider how much how those much much larger and much better plans of God were so disruptive to Israel's comfort. They, they involved God's refining discipline that we read about through the prophets. God's larger plans subjected Israel to Roman occupation so that people from Israel would move to every part of the empire so that at Pentecost, when the gospel was first proclaimed, we read that there was staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. See, God, God's, God's plans tore the Jewish nation apart as the emerging Christians uh, embrace their Gentile brothers and sisters. See, God had much bigger plans than Israel, and Israel suffered as a result. But, but wouldn't we all now say it was worth it? I mean, I mean, even with solid theology, we can struggle when we forget God's promises. Written to a group of Christians who are suffering, Peter writes, Dear friends, do you not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you? 1 Peter 4, 12. And perhaps that's how you can diagnose yourself in this category. Do you, do you expect to suffer? W- would you be surprised if a decade went by and nothing bad happened to you? Or Do you basically assume that life will continue on as it has? If you do, I suspect you've got some problems in your practical theology. And in particular, we should not be surprised when we run into suffering for being a Christian and living in light of the gospel. Or not because we're pessimistic or Eeyore-ish, but because suffering is part of following Jesus. Instead of being surprised, Peter calls us to rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. We see that in 1 Peter 4.13. See, it's not natural for us to rejoice when we face suffering for being a Christian. But when we understand that it has come because God's plans are bigger and better than our own, God gives us the grace to rejoice because we're not ashamed to be known as Jesus's followers. And the, the fourth unbiblical reaction to suffering is fear. Fear. It's this thought, oh, God can't help. So that, that's the, the unbiblical response to suffering, is thinking that God can't help, that this trial is beyond his control. An idea that ran through evangelicalism a few years ago um, and, and before that called, called the openness of God or open theology hypothesized that God cannot predict all future events. It's thought that in this way, human freedom and God's goodness are preserved. Listen to how one such theologian puts it. Decisions not yet made do not exist anywhere to be known, even by God. They are potential yet to be realized, but not actual. God can predict a great deal of what we will choose to do, but not all of it, because some of it remains hidden in the mystery of human freedom. The God of the Bible displays an openness to the future that the traditional view of omniscience simply cannot accommodate. I hope your theological bells were going off, right? I mean, denying God's knowledge of future events might be intended to offer comfort to those who may question the goodness of God, Like, like how God means well even when bad things happen. But in actuality, it radically redefines God in an unbiblical way. It makes God as someone who can change, someone who can doubt, someone who doesn't know the future and doesn't have all things ordered, that he can learn new things. Friends, God cannot learn any new things. He is God. He's unchanging. What is there to know that he does not know? So so what would these, these views do is they actually radically redefine who is God and they reform God in our own image instead of letting God be God. They they want to change who God is in an unbiblical way, make him unchanging, doubting, failing, though trying his best. That unbiblical thing brings no comfort. These unbiblical thoughts bring, bring no comfort to us because the Bible is clear that God is completely sovereign and he knows all things even before they happen. Isaiah 46, 9b and 10, God says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Psalm 139, four, before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. See friends, when when we hurt, it's not uncommon to wonder if God knows what he's doing, but he does. He's good, he's in control and, and he's careful with us. This is what Asaph realized when he was struggling to trust God in Psalm 73. He starts by observing what the wicked, that, that the wicked prospered while the, while the godly suffered. And, and he began to wonder if he'd trusted God in vain. <laughs> Ever been there? But, but then his understanding changed. Look with me at Psalm 73, 16 and 17. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. See, from a limited human perspective, he couldn't make sense of it. But when he looked at it from God's perspective, when he went into the sanctuary of God and saw their end, he was at peace. Compared to a wise God, he declares, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Psalm 73, 22b. You know, there will frequently be times when we will not be able to understand why God allowed something to happen. In those moments, we simply have to trust Him and go on obeying His wise commands for our lives, knowing that He is working all things together for good. Now, fifthly, our our fifth unbiblical reaction to suffering is the thought, God has it out for me. God is not good for me. See, sometimes we we know that God is good. We we know He's in control, and I guess the question we wrestle with is is God good for me? Here are two forms that might take. The first is a question of guilt, right? You might think, is He punishing me for something? In other words, is He acting for my good through this suffering, or or is He punish me punishing me because of something I did? Is God just brutal kid with like a the magnifying glass on an anthill just getting me because I deserve it? The second way we can doubt God's goodness is in the question of his purposes. Maybe maybe I I don't want what God is doing in this trial. Maybe I don't want to be a cog in his wheel, but but my theology is too good to think I can get out of it. And so I just sit and I sulk. I become God's obedient but reluctant servant. The example of Jonah maybe comes to mind. I just have a few thoughts here. I just, I just want to first address the question of guilt. Is God punishing you for something? Let's look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse five to eight. It reads, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Now, a few observations on these verses. Uh, First, this discussion of discipline is a word of encouragement. Now, this makes sense if the Christian's desire is to please the Heavenly Father. Second, God disciplines us for our good. Parents who, who have disciplined their children out of love understand that. The writer makes this connection in 12.9. If we can submit to the disciplines of our parents who are sinners, how much more the discipline of a good God? And even so, the idea of punishment that we see in this phrase, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son, is not judicial punishment, right? Romans 8 tells us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Rather, this punishment is the kind of discipline we give to our kids. It's for their good because we love them. So you might wonder, is my suffering God's discipline for a specific sin? D.A. Carson puts it really helpfully. He writes, It is the uncertainty of reading what is going on that sometimes breeds pain. Is the particular blow I am facing God's way of telling me to change something? Or is it a form of discipline designed to toughen me or soften me to make me more useful? Or is it a part of the heritage of all sons and daughters of Adam who live this side of Christ's return, unrelated to discipline but part of what of God's mysterious providence in a fallen world? But, but we must, must we always decide? If a little self-examination shows us how to improve, we ought to improve. There are times when all that the Christian can responsibly do is to trust his heavenly father in the midst of the darkness and pain. And I think it's interesting as well in this that God uses the local church to help us in this area. Right? We, we, can, we can ask a trusted friend to see if in light of scripture there is something we need to change, something we need to repent of, But but we know that God's love for his children is unwavering. Provided that we are willing to follow Jesus, he'll be faithful to lead and correct us along the way. And that's what a good shepherd does and that's what we can expect. But what about the second question of God's purposes? The the Jonah example I gave earlier. And maybe you know that God uses your suffering for his good ends. You you just don't believe that those ends are good for you. Does the cost of what God is doing in your life does that does that cost decrease your interest in his purposes? Well, I've got a few thoughts for you. Firstly, test yourself. Ask yourself whether in part you really don't want to be made like Jesus if this is the way God would have you do it. That tougher question would be, are you following Christ for Christ or for some other reason like benefits? Are you following Jesus because you thought he would make you healthy, wealthy, and wise? Are you following Jesus because you thought he'd make you prosperous? Are you following Jesus because it looks good on a resume to say you're part of a church or, or because you, you want to seem like a moral or a good person? Or, or are you following Christ because he is your Savior, God, and King who lived the life you deserved, a perfect one, and then suffered and died in your place as your substitute for your sin, and there's no forgiveness apart from him? See, having having questions during your suffering does not mean you're not a Christian, but testing on what you are relying and hoping on can help you see explicitly where your heart is, and it can make you think through what are you actually promised by God. Are you promised a long life? Are you are you pro- and, and what is long? Who do, who determines who determines what long is? Are you, are you promised a spouse? Are you promised a good spouse? Are you promised a spouse that won't cheat on you? Are you, are you promised a good job? Are you, are you promised a country that won't fall into tyranny? Are you, are you promised kids? Are you promised kids that will grow up and not break your heart? Are you promised that your kids will also live long lives, whatever long means? Are you, are you promised these things? Or are these things you hope for? Are you following Jesus? Is he your meal ticket to? a better life or is he your God, King and Savior who has paid your debt and adopted you into his family by grace and through faith? Do you really believe that in this life you'll have trouble but you can take heart because he's overcome the world? Do you really believe that to die is gain Asking yourself these kinds of questions can help you think through where your heart is. And, and this is a common struggle for Christians. If you're struggling, <laughs> if you're struggling with this, that's a common struggle for Christians. It's common to struggle for control of your life. You, you want life one way, God wants it another way. What's gonna happen? Well, if you're Jonah, God will pursue you, pursue you to the depths of the sea to get his way with you, which can be a terrifying prospect. He will win. And he's promised that his way really is good for you. Now, how do you struggle through that? Well, we're going to talk about that much more in the next couple of episodes. But in short, we pray for faith in God's goodness. Right, you know he's good, but as Jonathan Edwards puts it, you've not ascertained his goodness. You've not experienced him satisfyingly as good for you. So pray for your faith in God's goodness and then spend time reading of his goodness in your in his Word. And then talk with good Christian friends about what it looks like to believe in God's goodness for you. Our our job as Christians is to submit ourselves to him, not reluctantly, but gladly knowing that he cares for us. So so those are the five unbiblical reactions to suffering. The alternative is to trust the real God as revealed in scripture. And, And how we do that's the topic of the next episodes as we try to unpack the idea of struggling for faith in God's sovereignty and goodness. I want to say at the end of this episode, to, again, to thank the wonderful folks at Capitol Hill Baptist Church for letting us use a lot of the material that they have put together for suffering for their church, as well for our church. We're incredibly thankful for them as a ministry and just pray God's blessing on them. And that all of this will be useful and profitable in our lives as Christians, that God might continue to prepare us and to let us know who He is and how to walk through life, not in a way that's an unbiblical reaction to suffering, but in a biblical and a right way right reaction to suffering as his people. Now, I also want to let you know at the end of this episode that uh, initially we were going to go through all of these episodes just day after day after day, and I was going to release one every single day. But with it coming up to the weekend, uh, I thought it would be a little bit better for us to uh, have a little bit of time for you to catch up on maybe some episodes you missed. And so we'll be back on Monday with another one. So until then,